Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you today. It has been absolutely delightful to be a part of the Dalredo Church of Christ worship services and Bible study. I want to express my thanks to the eldership for this wonderful invitation, to Doug for his kind words earlier today, and then here just a few minutes ago. Now, my hearing's not as good as it used to be, or he slurred the word adjunct. An adjunct professor or teacher? I thought he said adjunct teacher at Fried Hardman University. I thought, yeah, I didn't know he'd been in one of my classes. What a delight to be here and to have Bob lead us in singing this morning. Didn't he do a great job? Terry, I didn't know you could lead singing. To have Terry lead singing this afternoon. Of course, you know that Terry used to be a professor at Fried Hardeman, and I miss him being there. He was a delight to be around, and I asked students from several years back during his tenure there, who was one of your favorite teachers at Fried Hardeman? Invariably, they would say Terry Edwards, and they'd talk about your classes. And they talk about your use of technology and how you just walked them through the Bible lands and such like. You were, and I know even here at Faulkner, a great asset for the Lord's kingdom. Thank you very much for leading us in these songs today. What a tremendous assignment or responsibility to talk about God. You ever considered God? Here is a universe that is ever expanding because it's running down. I understand that one galaxy in this universe, the Milky Way, is nothing more than 120,000 light years from point A to point B. Now, light travels, of course, at a pace of about 186,000 miles a second. One, two, three, second. Traveling at that pace, one, two, three, you can traverse or circumnavigate the earth no less than seven times. And yet traveling at that given pace, it would still take you 120,000 years to go from one point in the galaxy known as the Milky Way to the other point. And that's just one of an estimated billions of galaxies in the universe. But wait a minute. Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain our God. God encapsulates this ever-expanding universe and penetrates the same. You cannot think of anywhere God is not, including your life. What an assignment to talk about God. But wait a minute, more than that, to talk about love. Let me tell you a more excellent way. The Apostle Paul said, let me set before you a better path down which to travel. In the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12. And the whole next chapter is that chapter about agape, love. What an assignment. To talk about love, not God's love for us, for God is love, and that would be something that we could not begin to even comprehend. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend, not the least of which is his love, which is the essence of his character. But what an assignment to talk about God, to talk about love, and wait a minute, to talk about my love 
and your love for God. And that's what sets us in the words of Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus said, as we just sang, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he explains, this is the first, the protos, this is the one in front of all other commandments. Now, just by means of introduction this afternoon, there are several things just of stark interest to me as I read these words of Jesus. First of all, every single time he says, love the Lord thy God with, the word with translates that preposition ek, meaning out of. And so it's not so much a tool with the tool of my heart, with the tool of my soul, with the tool of my mind, and with the tool of my strength. It is a reservoir. Here is every drop that makes up my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. And these four reservoirs, everything that can be found out of all of that, I am to love God. Second, by means of introduction, I find that every one of these is prefaced by the term all, holos, meaning every bit of it, the whole of it, every parcel and part of it. And so if you're talking about your mind, you're talking about that by which you are to love God. If it has something to do with your character, your personality, your psyche, your soul, you're talking about something by which you are to love God. If you're talking about your abilities and your prowess, be it your intellectual prowess, your organizational prowess, your physical prowess, your strength, out of that should come your love for God, out of every bit of it. If you're talking about your heart, out of that reservoir, every bit of it, you are to love God. There is nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, to love other than God. You are to love God with everything that is you, no one else. Brother Dan, now the Bible says that a husband ought to love his wife as he loves his own self. So you love yourself and you love your wife, yes. Now the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, yes. Now the Bible says love one another from the heart fervently, yes. But ladies and gentlemen, I love my wife because I first love God. And I love my brethren and I love my neighbor and I love myself in the ways that I'm supposed to because I first love God. And it's my love for God that encapsulates every particle of my being that dictates my feelings for everyone else. And thus, by means of introduction, that's why Jesus said, this is the commandment that is in front of every other commandment. I understand that in the Old Testament, someone has calculated 613 specific commands. There are supposedly 248 positive commands, if memory serves, one for every letter in the Ten Commandments, and 365 negative commands, one for every day 
of the year's calendar. If that be true, only if that be true, if there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, Jesus said the one that's in front of all of them is, you love God with all that is you. And there's room for no one else. And it's your love for everyone else that flows from your love for God. That having been said, as we studied this passage, we've done two things earlier today, as we wish to do in this particular study. We have taken our passage and set it into an arena called interpretation. And we tried to put our finger on the pulse of the passage and see what it's actually saying. Then having captured some concept of what Jesus is actually saying and why, we've stepped over into a second arena of study called application. And we've tried to invite our study into the 21st century and into your life and mine with one lesson and one suggestion for applying that lesson. Let's do that again tonight, this afternoon. First of all, let's take this passage one last time and step into the arena of interpretation. In doing so, two things. First, let's look at the context. Second, let's look at the text. Now, you remember from previous studies, as we set this passage into its context, Jesus is in dialogue with three specific groups of people, ambassadors sent from the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. The Pharisees, verse 13 who were ultra-pious, ultra the Herodians, who were ultra-political, verse 13, and then verse 18, for our thoughts this afternoon, the Sadducees, who were the ultra-privileged. They were the affluent of the Jewish people. In verse 18, we find the Sadducees coming to Jesus Now, it explains that the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. They didn't believe in the spirit world. And so they didn't believe in a resurrection. So they came trying to put Jesus to the test again. You go back to verse 13, and it says the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to catch Jesus, snare him in his teachings, his words. The Sadducees came to Jesus, and they asked him a question. But of interest, the word for ask here is not the usual Greek word for to make an inquiry. It is actually two words put together. It is a verb that means to interrogate. To set one in a chair and put the heat of a spotlight right down on his forehead to interrogate. And that word is prefaced by the word epi or over, to interrogate over. So they set Jesus in the chair of interrogation and they put the heat of the spotlight right on him by asking him this question they thought would back him into a corner. Of course, Jesus replied to the question in verse 24 by telling them that they were mistaken or did err by not knowing their Bibles. Had they known their Bibles, they would have known not to ask such a question. So here's Jesus speaking to individuals that were testing his his eschatology, as we would say, his last things theories. They were testing his theology, and they were doing so from the vantage point of individuals who were the affluent, 
Pause just for a moment. The most affluent of Jesus' day are now in dialogue with him. Back up just a bit. Do you remember what Jesus said to the question, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Verse 15. Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius. Jesus didn't even have a denarius. Matthew 20 tells us that was a single day's wage. Here is a man that did not even have on his person a single day's wage, a single coin. And the most affluent of the Jewish religion are coming trying to test the man. That's in the context of our passage. And as a result, what Jesus said had an implicit message for these people who were so well-to-do blessed monetarily. To the Pharisees, the pious, who capitalized on the traditions of man for their authority, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord. You need to be listening to God. And if you listen to God, this is what he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because in their formality, in their pious, ultra-conservatism, they had lost heart. Their heart was far from Jesus, he said in Matthew 18, 9. To the political Herodians, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The one who is because he is master is our God. He gets your allegiance, not the politics of the day, the family of Herod, the Roman Empire. Give your heart your allegiance to God, was his implicit message. And to them, how fitting were the words, love the Lord your God with all of your psyche, all of your soul, everything that is you. Give him your allegiance. But now to these well-to-do affluent who are daring to question the penniless Savior. He had some implicit words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ladies and gentlemen, if God is in your heart, there is room for nothing else. If you realize that there is only one Lord, things in this world will not master your value system. The decisions that you make will be made not based upon future financial security. The decisions that you make will not be made based upon how you can meet your financial goal and make a new purchase. The decisions that you make will not be made based upon what you have, but who has you, God. You must realize He is Lord. Nothing else in this world is to have your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. They needed to hear that because they were living for that day and age, that world, the affluent how many cars are in your driveway? 
I heard a question asked on the radio just last week. How many pairs of shoes are in your closet? One lady called in. She said, I have a hundred. I began to count my wife's. I won't tell you. I think she has six. I began to think about mine. I think I have six. And there are some that walk barefooted. How many suits of clothing are in your closet? How many ties? How many bank accounts do you have? Savings? Checking? What about your portfolio? Into how many funds are you invested? Think about your life's experience and your life's expenses. Think about how much you have spent in contrast to how much you have saved, in contrast to how much you have given. What is your value system? Who really is Lord Hmm. in your life? The affluent needed to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one Lord. You better be thinking about Him. An implicit message to the Sadducees. But then he goes on and says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Pharisees needed to hear that. With all your soul. Herodians needed to hear that. And then with all your mind. And he goes on in adjunct. And with all your strength. Now I believe those two go together for our thoughts this afternoon. Because the word that is translated mind is dianoia. Noia, thinking. Dia, thoroughly. Thinking thoroughly. I mean, working it out in your mind. Not just a casual glance, not just a spot thought, but a thinking thoroughly. Now watch that and how emphatic Jesus is in the words that he employed. Love God out of the reservoir... Of every particle of your individual thorough thinking. And out of the reservoir of every particle of your individual strength. Not power, dunamis, dynamite, dynamic, dynamo. Excuse, not excuses, excuse abilities. So here I am thoroughly putting my mind to something and then I put every ounce of my energy ability into that something. Now you got the idea. You love God out of those two reservoirs coming together. This is the first commandment. The word that is translated strength translates the Hebrew term back in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 6 for vehemence. Love God with all of your vehemence. It's the idea of ardor, zeal, fervor. 
And so I'm putting my thought thoroughly to this. And I'm putting all of my energies into this. Love for God. Let me remind you that's a commandment, not a suggestion, not an option. You will stand before Jesus based upon your response and your obedience to that commandment. Which is first before any other commandment in the Bible. And so the context, Jesus is responding to three groups of people with implicit messages unique to the needs of each. Let's step out of the arena of interpretation and step into the arena of application now. And think about this idea of loving God with all of our thorough thinking mind. And loving God with all of our abilities. I believe it was John Wesley, the preacher from the Reformation movement, that was asked, well, how is it you get so many people come to hear you preach? He said, before I get up, I just set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. Can people come to watch you burn? Or are the embers beginning to die? Have they turned to ash? Is the heart cold? Think about that word fervor for a minute and how it just penetrates Christianity. Before doing so, let me give you one lesson, one word. Now, from loving God with all of our heart, we learn that Christianity is a religion of emotion. And to succeed in being people of emotion, we need to spend some time at the foot of in the shadows of Calvary. From loving God with all of our soul, we learn that Christianity is a religion of devotion. And to be people who are more devoted, we've suggested that we need to nurture the concept of a relationship with God. Who wants to be our father and call us sons and daughters. The one lesson that I want us to think about in the arena of application that comes from loving God with all of your mind and with all of your strength is this. Christianity is a religion of promotion. The way you live your life promotes the cause of Jesus and the glory of God. Let all that you do Be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Add to that. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
So here I'm trying to love the way I'm supposed to love. And in doing so, everything is designed to bring glory to God, to promote God. Now, when the weather gets hot and I make a decision on what I'm going to wear, do I want to look hot or do I want to promote the glory of God? I want you to think about that. I mean, that just takes care of this concept of what is modest apparel. Nonsense, isn't it? To say modest apparel is so many inches above the knee or so many inches below the knee. Modest apparel is apparel that reveres God. In whatever society you and I find ourselves. Christianity is a religion of promotion. Fervor. It is zeal that motivates my contrition, that is, my feeling bad when I hurt God. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Keep reading, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly way. What diligent it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what boiling over, what zeal, what indignation. You see, this concept of zeal, ardor, fervor is attached to godly sorrow, contrition. Fervor has something to do with my contribution. If I turn the page... To 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I read. Or in chapter 8. Moreover brethren we make known to you the grace of God. Bestowed upon the grace of God. Bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction. The deep abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. Abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now watch carefully. Chapter 9 verse 2. In reference to their liberality. I know your willingness. About which I boast of you to the Macedonians. That Achaia was ready a year ago. And your zeal fervor has stirred up the majority. Fervor pushes me to knees of contrition. Fervor helps me reach back to my pocketbook. And give willingly. Not grudgingly. Happily, Fervor, zeal is involved in my petitions, my prayer life. It's the effective, fervent, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. Many words for prayer in the Bible. In James 5, 16 and 17, two are used. One is eukomai, which simply means to talk to one of higher rank. And it was the word that was used for talking to God. But there's another word, diasis, and it means to make the request of an indigent. The effectual fervent making the prayer of an indigent. 
from a righteous man avails much. The best illustration of the word translated prayer in James 5.16 is the idea of a man reaching up to God with empty hands. By the way, you read about it often in the Old Testament, and that's according to Paul's words of 1 Timothy 2. That's what it means to lift up holy hands. It means to lift up hands that are emptied to God as one impoverished, saying, I cannot do this, get through this without you. That's diasis, that's prayer, that's James 5, 16, and watch. It is the effective, fervent prayer of an indigent that avails much. Fervent. The word fervent there is the word for ergonomics. Working, working out, working in. Literally, it means the ergonomics that are on the inside. The ergonomics working on the inside, pushing you to reach up in a request of an indigent to God. That avails much. The word translated is fervent. Zeal is to be a part of my contrition, a part of my contribution, a part of my petitions, and it's even a part of my protection, my reaching out and helping you as a brother or a sister in Christ, protecting you. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. You see, promotion, fervor, zeal is a part of the Christian life. I'm to love God to the point that I want to promote His glory with all my being. Brother Dan, I understand that Christianity is a religion of promotion or zeal. Help me be more zealous. What can help me get on fire for God? I know of only one motivational factor that will every single time set you on fire. And so here's my suggestion to help you with this one lesson. Make Jesus the focal point of your life. I I thought you said we were to live for God's glory. Yes, but no one comes unto the Father but by me, Jesus said. You want to go to God? You have to go to God through Jesus. So make Jesus the focal point. Of your life. Colossians 4 verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on things on the earth. Why? Why do you seek things above? Verse 1. Why do you set your mind on things above? Verse 2. Because verse 1. That's where Christ is. For you died, your life is hidden with Christ, hidden with Christ in God. Now read it. When Christ, who 
is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus Christ is to be our life. Do not buy into that acrostic J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Jesus should never be first. Jesus is not content with being first. Jesus is everything, not just first. He is our life. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. On your own, sing songs about Jesus Christ. Spend more time with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Jesus Christ. Get to the point when you can say with Paul, for me to live is what? Is what? Christ and to die is gain. Then you're well down the road to making certain that your Christianity is a religion of promotion. Promoting the glory of God through the example of Jesus Christ. Who is your life? Of Jesus it was said, zeal for my father's house hath eaten me up. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that he gave himself that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possession zealous of good works. To those of us today that are neither hot nor cold but find ourselves lukewarm sitting in a pew on Sunday afternoon, more excited about a football game yesterday afternoon than we are about singing praises to God, remember the words, repent, metanaeo, better change the way you think, repent and be zealous, get on fire. It was Jehonadab that said in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 16, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Can you tell people that? Can you say that to folks? Let me read it again. Because if you can't say that for folks, then maybe the Lord's invitation needs to be yours today. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. A person who loves God with all of his or her mind and all of his or her strength can say that. Man came to fill out an application for a job. And he was interviewing with HR. And he said to the agent, he said, I tell you, if I, I'm so excited about this job, if 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 you were to if you were to push me into the Mississippi, I'd set the world on fire. The man said, I'm not interested in you setting the world on fire. 
I want to know if you were pushed into the Mississippi, would the Mississippi itself catch fire? Poker was placed into the fire, left for a while, pulled out. The tip was red hot, to which the father said to the son, the poker was in the fire. Now the fire is in the poker. You can't be in Jesus Christ unless Jesus Christ gets in you. And you set the Mississippi on fire. He was playing for the Georgia Bulldogs. You can say boo, I will. They were playing the Texas Longhorns. It was the third quarter, and they had made a first down all game long. He was the third string quarterback. His team found themselves deep into their own territory. It was more than he could stand, and so just on his own, this third string quarterback ran from the sidelines out, sent the playing quarterback to the sidelines, and took control of the game. The head coach thought the quarterback coach had sent him in. The quarterback coach thought the head coach had sent him in. He'd gone in on his own. He made the right plays. With fervor in his heart, he led his team down for a touchdown, won the game, and the rest was history. As today we look back on the tremendous career of a Hall of Fame quarterback named Fran Tarkington. A man who had a zeal for a game. I'm asking you today, do you have a zeal for God? Here are the words again. I want to know, and only you can tell God the answer. Do you love God? Hear it. Out of the reservoir of everything that is your heart. Out of the reservoir of everything that is your soul. Out of the reservoir of everything that is your thorough thinking. And out of the reservoir of everything that constitutes your skill set, your abilities. That's the first commandment God expects us to obey before any others. How are you doing as we stand together and sing?